Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. I have a message here, then I have something that's really pressing in my heart that I want to talk about too, so we'll see if, if the two go together, and if not, then one will have to wait. Um, just thinking about what Dylan was talking about actually earlier. Um, you know that that it's not, that fear will always try to come, and that hearing that voice isn't sin. Hearing that voice saying this is going to happen, that's going to happen, feeling that that feeling trying to grip you is not sin in and of itself. And 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 I think that's something that we have to be really careful. We have to understand that Jesus was tempted in every way common to man, yet without sin. Meaning that it wasn't sin for him to be tempted to want to do the things that he wanted that 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 were tempted with. It was actually giving in and following that temptation that would have been sin. And so, and it's not as if Jesus didn't hear the voice of the enemy and think about what he was saying because when he was tempted in the wilderness, he didn't just shoot back random verses that he just pulled indiscriminately from the Bible. He actually answered him with the very verses that spoke directly against what the enemy was saying to him. So he actually heard and thought about what was being said, and then he responded. Hearing a voice that's trying to make you afraid and thinking about what it's saying is not a sin. It's the response that becomes sin. When we give in and respond according to the fear rather than to the faith. And so I was, um, I was looking up in my Bible uh, during worship, and just God brought me to, um, to Nehemiah chapter 6. And um, in, in this, uh, Nehemiah is... Um, is rebuilding the city. He's doing the work of the Lord. He's doing what God placed into his heart. And suddenly two false prophets come and, and they speak to him and tell him that his life is in danger and that they should, he should go and meet them in the temple at night and all this different stuff. And, and he's hearing their voices. He's hearing what they're saying. And the opportunity to fear is there, to fear for his life. And this is how he responds. He responds and says, Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin. So they might have an evil evil report in order that they could reproach me. The voice of the enemy comes to bring something to you that will cause you to fear and then act upon that fear and sin. That's the whole reason you hear that voice speaking is because he's trying to reproduce himself inside of you. Listen, the stuff that happened over in Paris has one motivation. It is pure evil. And its motivation and its intention and the desire of evil is to reproduce itself inside of each and every one of us. That we would become the very thing that we despise. And if we're not careful, we'll despise people and we'll make people the enemy even though we know full well the Bible says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so we despise the Spirit that those people are listening to. We despise the thing that is controlling them. And we despise the theology that produces that kind of hatred. But we love the people. And we pray for them. We pray that God would raise up a Paul among them. That there would be one whose heart would be so gripped by, by who Jesus is, that He would see Him and that Jesus would grip His heart and He would know that it's Me that you're persecuting. See, that was Saul. 
He thought that he was doing the Lord's work. He thought that everything he was doing was according to the Word. And he thought that he was serving God. And then God grips his heart, knocks him off a horse, blinds him. And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, it's I'm the one you're persecuting. And if one of them would just have that experience where they would be blinded and that their eyes would be open to truth and they would see Him for who He is and would hear His voice and their heart would be turned and they would understand that it's actually Him that they're persecuting when they persecute Christians. That He could be turned. That He would become from being the most feared person in the world to being a person who actually spread the Gospel of Jesus more effectively than most people ever will. And that's our prayer. Because God loves them just as much as He loves us. Jesus died for them just as much as He died for us. And that He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the world. That's the Gospel. And so right now, it would be really easy for fear to grip people and for people to act out of fear. And, and, and I would just want to say this right now, that the Bible says in Romans 14, it also says that anything that's not done out of faith is sin. So there's this dichotomy in the Word that says that if I act according to fear, it's sin. If I act outside of faith, it's sin. So if the things that I'm doing and the things that I'm saying, if the motivation is fear, then I need to stop saying them, stop doing them, and I need to understand that something is coming out of me being produced by something that's not supposed to be in me. That the words that says, Jesus said at what, that a man will speak from what his heart is full of. If my heart is full of fear, the words coming from my mouth will echo that. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm, I'm doing. Watch my actions and understand if what is coming out of my mouth is not full of faith. See, we don't mourn as those who have no hope because we understand that everything that you say at the end of it, you can say, but God. And there's got to be that hope inside of us because if we are the hope of the world and we give up on people, who believes in them? And we do that, and we talked to us the other week, but I'm telling you, listen to me, right now is a perfect example. We, if we give up on those people and we judge them to be hopeless, we do so at the expense of at some point in our lives believing that we're hopeless. Because the only way we can judge them to be hopeless is if we are willing to believe there is something that God cannot or will not change. And if we believe that for them, then it gives the enemy a voice into our lives, and at some point we will believe that for ourselves. Because you cannot hold a theology for other people that you don't eventually accept for yourself. And if I judge them to be hopeless and beyond the reach of God's love, there will be some time in my life where I will allow that same judgment to be made towards me because I've given that thing a voice in my life. Don't do it. Don't. I'm telling you, you can't hold a theology towards others that you're not willing to accept about yourself at some point. And it's giving the devil a foothold when I say that they're beyond help, they're beyond hope, because now I've judged that there's something outside of his willingness or his ability to change. And if I believe that for them, I will believe it for myself. And I'll find myself in a hopeless situation because I allowed that seed of hopelessness to be sown by the actions of people who are being controlled by demonic spirits. Don't take the bait. Inside of every fruit, I'm telling you, you guys, it's like God knew this was coming, right? A lot of the stuff that we were speaking about is so applicable because inside of every fruit is a seed that will reproduce after its own kind. 
And so when we eat that fruit, there's a seed inside of that fruit that will reproduce after its own kind. So when we take the bait and we allow something that was done to change and take our eyes off of Jesus and the hope that's found in Him, when we do that and we eat that fruit and we taste that bitterness and we actually welcome that into our lives, not only are we going to find a bitter taste in our mouth in the moment, but there's a seed inside of that that will reproduce after its own kind. And bitterness and anger and frustration and hopelessness will start growing up in our lives lives because that seed is within that fruit don't take the bait it's what happened to the first adam inside of the fruit on the tree was the seed of sin that would reproduce after its own kind and when adam and eve ate the fruit the seed went in them and from that time forward it reproduced unrighteousness and it reproduced sin in every person who came after them because inside of that fruit of sin was the seed to reproduce after its own kind and that's why jesus came and he's the second adam and he hangs upon a tree and says you have to eat of me and drink of me in order to be born again why what is he saying he's saying i'm the first fruit remember jesus the first fruit of many brethren he's the first fruits of god he's hanging on a tree and he says if you eat of me i'll get inside of you and the fruit of me will reproduce because inside of me there's the seed of life there's a seed of hope there's a seed of courage and it will reproduce after its own kind and what you'll find growing out of you will be the good things that you want coming out of your life and not the fear that came with the fruit of adam please 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 be careful what fruit you eat The enemy is constantly doing things and putting bait out there and he wants you to take the bait. I'm telling you, he wants you to take the bait because he wants to get that seed inside of you because he's looking to... Just like God wants to reproduce himself inside of you by putting his Holy Spirit inside of you, the enemy wants to reproduce himself inside of you by putting his Spirit inside of you. And you get to be the one that decides. It says don't give the devil a foothold. He cannot take one in your life, but he will take one if you give it to him. Be really careful. Look, I promise when I first heard what happened, every single thought that everyone has had rushed into my head. You just look at these innocent people and you feel the bitterness and you feel the anger towards what's happening. That's okay. There's a godly use for that bitterness and that anger, but it's not to be directed towards people because they're not the enemy. It's to be directed towards the prince and the power of the air. Anything that would rise itself up against the knowledge of God and who He is. It's against the true enemy. The spirit of this world who has come and blinded men's eyes and clouded their vision. So let our prayers, let our words be centered on that. If we actually believe the Word, then we have to believe that the problem lies in the spirit realm and not with people. And we need to be praying and warring against that spirit and praying that God would raise up people who are filled with the opposite spirit that would come against that. Okay? For, at, at least for this house. Watch your Facebook. Watch your Twitter. Watch your conversations. Make sure that what you're saying is rooted in faith and not in fear. And if something that's coming out of you is rooted in fear, find the root of that fear and find out why am I speaking this way? Why am I talking in a way that goes against the knowledge that there is a God in heaven who loves and even though it looks dark, but God. See, that's the mindset we have to have. That's what David was talking about in the psalm. We talk about this all the time because I feel like it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, a verse for our body, but for the church in general right now. It's that I would have dismayed had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, I look around right now and everything I see would naturally lead me to despair. And if I was like those who didn't know Him and had no hope, I would give myself to despair. But I'm not like those. I do have hope and I believe that there's something greater than what I see. And 
and that's his truth. And so I can't even despair because I know that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And what comes from my mouth will reflect that faith in my heart. Because Jesus said, if you believed, you would say to this mountain. In other words, Jesus said, listen to me. What you believe will come out of your mouth. If you want to know what you believe, look at what you type. Look at what you say. Look at what you agree with. That's a greater revelation of, of actually what you really believe than if someone comes to you and says, hey, do you believe this? It's easy with our mouths to just say, oh yeah, I believe that. But our actual lives should reflect that deep in our hearts there is a faith and a belief that's greater than what we see. You're the hope of the world. Literally. Christ in you is the hope of the world. If the people who are called the hope of the world throw their hands up and are hopeless, what chance does the world have? We have got to have our thinking and our actions shaped by His Word more than the enemy's actions. We have to. There has to be something different about us. We're called to be a peculiar people. Listen, I'm not saying that I'm against the people of Paris defending themselves and doing what they have to do to defend themselves. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is is that for us to jump on a bandwagon of saying that every single person who belongs to a certain religion should be killed because of the actions of some makes us just as horrible as the people who believe that every single Christian should be killed. There's no difference in the two. It's the same spirit. It's murder. It's hatred. And it is rooted and founded in fear. Don't take the bait. Don't eat the fruit. All right. Now that we're on that nice light subject, how are you guys? Yeah? You're doing better than you know, I promise. Like, because every day you're discovering more and more of his goodness and more and more of who he is and who he's called you to be. And every day you discover something more wonderful about this life that we've been called and privileged to live. But along with that comes responsibility. Along with that comes an obligation to actually live out what we say we believe, to actually represent Jesus to the world. You know, that's the way that most people are going to understand who Jesus is, is by seeing the actions of people who claim to follow him. I don't want to be another generation that has someone like Gandhi say, I love your Jesus. I don't understand your Christians. All right, open your. We're going to go here. We talked about this a little while ago, but I just want to really talk about this a little bit more. Open your Bibles um, to Ezekiel um, chapter 37. While I smoothly change the air conditioning. Ezekiel chapter 37, everybody knows this story. I think. If you don't, you will by the end of today. Um, This is not what I had planned, so um, Lonnie, the notes, yeah, the verses I gave you will be useless today probably. Um, So Ezekiel chapter 37 says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. 
He caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you're stirring our hearts right now, that that right now that the soil of our hearts would be good soil, that the seed of your word would go in and produce fruit, God, that a world that is dying to know you would taste the fruit of our lives and see that you're good. God, that by the fruit of our lives, a world that does not know You would taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, I thank You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. So here's Ezekiel. He's walking with God. And he's, being, he's been called to be a prophet already. He's used to hearing the, the Word of the Lord. And he gets called into this valley and he walks around and he sees nothing but dry bones. Listen, just because what you see is dry bones doesn't mean that's all that God intends it to be, but it also means that there really is dry bones there. We don't live in denial. We don't walk around and say, that's not happening. La, 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 and stick our hands in our ears, right? For some people, that's what faith is. It's, it's denial that there's actually something going on. No, it's not denying there's something going on. It's denying that that thing has the final say and is greater than the Word of God. So he looks and he sees dry bones. It's the truth. There's dry bones. Right now, the truth of the matter is there are people who absolutely hate people who are not part of their religion. And there's Muslims that feel the same way too. There's a lot of Christians that hate people that don't agree with their religion. There's Muslims that do the same thing. The truth of the matter is they're both wrong. But the truth is, it's happening right now. So to deny it and stick our head in the sand and act like it's not there, the difference is, is how do we respond? See, Ezekiel could have looked out, saw dry bones, and said, there's nothing but dry bones. And when God said, can these live? He could have said no. Why? Because experience tells you that dry bones can no longer live. They've already lived. They've run their course. They've died. Everything has decomposed. And now there's nothing left but dry bones. And if we're going by just what we see right now, there is no hope for a lot of the people who have given themselves over to this thing. But instead of declaring what he sees with his eyes, he's smart enough to at least realize that if God's asking me a question, maybe there's something he knows that I don't. So he says, oh Lord, you know that's a good answer for any question that God asks you (laughs) Roy do you want to go pray for that person over there oh Lord you know (laughs) but sometimes we would be wise rather than just answering 
with what first pops into our head if we would just be quiet and consider that maybe there's something he knows that we don't and invite him to show us what it is. See, Ezekiel at least had enough sense to not just close the case and say, no, they can't live. Why? Because life and death is in the power of the tongue. You understand that with our words, we can actually bring life to things and we can actually bring death to things. And, re- when, and out of our heart, our mouth speaks. So if our, if our heart is full of hope and our heart is full of life and our heart is full of love, then what comes out of our mouth will be hope and love and life and all good things. It says in, in uh, Proverbs that a man eats from the fruit of his good words and he enjoys it. And so if the truth is that life and death is in the power of the tongue, oh, I thought I heard a ringing. Um, if life and death is in the power of the tongue, then that means that what we say actually matters. You want to, here's a real simple way that that works. Because the tongue is not just loose by itself, right? The tongue is an extension of the heart, so what we believe in the heart comes out of our tongue. So I'll give you guys a, a real quick example. There are things in this life that by believing and speaking, we can actually bring to life that are supposed to be dead. See, we always use it the other way, like we can bring dead things to life, but we can also bring things that are supposed to be dead to life. Here's a perfect example of them. How many of you guys have ever believed in generational curses over your life? How many of you guys? It's okay, you're not going to get scolded. See, now look at all the hands go up, right? You believe that there was a generational curse because at some point somebody taught you that there was a generational curse over your life. And they used verses from the Old Testament and they said that the sins of the Father will be passed down to the third and fourth generation and that God will visit the sins upon them and, and hold their iniquities against them. And you were told that the sins of your father was being visited upon you and that, that was causing a curse. And, you gave, and, and, when, and, and when someone taught you that, you agreed with it, and then what came out of your mouth was, I have a generational curse over me. And you brought something that was supposed to be dead back to life because Jesus came along later in the new covenant, in the better covenant, in the covenant that the people who lived under that wished that they had, and said this. He said, for one, call no earthly man your father, for you have one who is your father, and he is in heaven. So if the sins of the father are the root of generational curses, and I'm not to call an earthly man my father, but call God who is my father in heaven father, then how many curses can I expect to come upon me because of the sins of my father? Zero. If he became the curse for me because it is written, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree... And not just a curse, he became the curse, the curse of the law, which generational curses were tied to the law, which was sin. Then how many curses can I expect to come upon me if Jesus became the curse for me? How many? Zero. But yet somebody told me I had a generational curse and so I believed it in my heart and I opened my mouth and I spoke it and I gave the devil a foothold and he started to wreak havoc in my life because what I expected and what I believed and what I set my heart upon became the thing that I actually lived under. Be really careful because the power of life and death is in the tongue. And the tongue is controlled by the heart. And what I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth happens. Why? Because we believe in our heart, confess with our mouth unto salvation, and we're saved. And the same thing that causes salvation to come upon our lives can cause things into our, let things into our lives that were never supposed to be there that Jesus actually hung on a cross and took on our behalf. There is no such thing as this generational curse being passed upon you because of the sin of your father if you're born again in Jesus because you stepped out of that bloodline and into his and you are never again to call an earthly man your father in the way that God wants to be your father. 
How many of you guys have ever heard that before? I've preached that a bunch of times. How many of you guys have never heard that before? How many of you guys right now feel like you need to be set free from that by believing that truth? I, 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 right now, yeah, right now, I bless you with just the ability to, for the rest of your life, never accept that there is anything coming down the line because of your Father ever again. Because you have one who is your Father, and He is in heaven. And the only thing coming down the line because of the bloodline that you're in is goodness and mercy and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and love and peace and joy. That is all that is coming to you. Listen, you're walking after Him. There's nothing following you waiting for a chance to devour you because if He's your shepherd, then goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. Never again be nervous. There's something coming from behind you. It's His goodness and mercy. Turn around and embrace it if you want to. I promise you. This is the problem, is that with well-meaning intentions, we teach these things to people and then people believe them and they empower what they believe in their life and it becomes something that then they need people to be set free from. And so it's this big circle that we keep doing of discovering things that are wrong, going to somebody to find out how it can be fixed, being fixed, then going living our lives. And every single time something else goes wrong, we think there's something else that has to be cured and fixed because we think it's something wrong with me because we believe that a wrong action means that there's a wrong person. And we identify with it and it becomes something that we say, well, this is what I am, so I need to be fixed. No, this is what you are. Don't you know that you, that you are God's temple and God's temple is holy and that is what you are? That's the Word of God. That's in the Bible. That's in Corinthians. He says God's temple is holy and don't you know that you are the temple of the living God and His temple is holy and that is what you are? Why was Paul saying that? Because people were accepting that they were less than holy, and so they were opening the door and giving the enemy a voice in their life, and when he would accuse them, they would agree with it because they would see their actions lined up with the accusation, and they weren't able to separate what they did from who they were. And so I failed, so I must be a failure. I lied, so I must be a liar. I sinned, so I must be a sinner. But yet, as he was writing this letter, he said, to the saints. The saints. Not to the sinners. And then he lists these sinful things that are going on. So here we have a conundrum. Either they're saints or they're sinners. And if they're saints, but yet they're sinning, then there must be something that separates what they've done from who they are. And that's why he's reminding them of that and saying, don't you know who you are? Because if you're living less than that, it's not because who you are has changed. It's because what you believe has changed and you have settled for something less than Jesus died for you to live. Don't ever do that. Don't welcome anything in your life that He died for you to be set free from. And that takes obedience on our behalf. Listen, that doesn't just happen automatically. You become born again. It is a free gift. It is the grace of God. But I promise you that walking out your salvation is a choice that you make. And if we decide to be obedient, there's blessing that comes. But if we're disobedient, we step out from underneath that blessing and there are consequences for our actions. And we cannot just deny the fact that we have been set free for holiness and we've been delivered from sin, not set free for sin. You, grace is the, is the ability to live the life that Jesus called us to live, not the ability to keep living the way we were and have an excuse. I promise you. So life and death is in the power of the tongue, what we say. So Ezekiel at least doesn't speak death. He's not certain. It's okay to be unsure. It's not okay to, when you're unsure, go with natural wisdom. 
We make that mistake a lot of times because we don't understand something. So when we are unsure, we go with natural wisdom. Natural wisdom would say, no, there's no way those bones could live. At least Ezekiel, to his credit, didn't speak out of his uncertainty, but at least left the door open that perhaps there was something that he didn't know that God did. So he said, oh Lord, you know. And then God says something amazing to him. He says, I better read it. My wife hates when I paraphrase the Bible. God probably does too. He said, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come come to life. I will put sinews on you make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. What does Ezekiel do? He prophesies. The very next line says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. Just because it was God's desire to make that happen didn't leave out the fact that he asked a man to stand in a place and say something and declare what he was wanting to do. We've got to understand something. Just because God is the most powerful force in the universe doesn't mean that if He asks us to do something that there's a part that we play in bringing about His purposes here on the earth. He's chosen to bring His kingdom to earth through a man. That's why Jesus came born a man and walked out what it was to live a perfect life and then said, follow me. Because He's always desired to work and operate through a man. It's the reason why Judas betrayed Jesus in the garden. Why? Because everything done in the Garden of Gethsemane was undoing what was done in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of of Eden, man betrays God by listening to the voice of a stranger and hands authority over to the enemy. In the Garden of Gethsemane, man once again betrays God and hands authority back to to the Father by the action that he's doing. So that's why they hired Judas. They knew who Jesus was. They tried to kill him. They just said, holy, holy, holy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. They laid their jackets in front of his donkey. They tried him. They plotted to kill him. They tried to push him off a cliff. They knew who Jesus was and they knew what Jesus looked like. It wasn't hard to find him, but yet they hired Judas to show them who Jesus was. Why? Because God is undoing in the Garden of Gethsemane what was done in the Garden of Eden. And if man betrayed God in the Garden of Eden, then man once again would betray God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And everything that was done in the Garden would be undone in the next garden. Everything that the first Adam did, the second Adam would do right. So he comes and he kisses him. Man puts his lips on the first fruit of God. Just like man put his lips on the fruit of the tree. Think about that. Jesus says, I am the first fruit and he hangs upon a tree and says, eat of me. Judas in the garden puts his lips on the first fruit of God, undoing what happened when man in the first garden put his lips on the fruit of the tree, listening to the voice of the enemy. You know what the beautiful thing about both those is? Both times it was the voice of the enemy leading them to do it. Because he's able to redeem anything. (laughs) He's able to redeem anything. (laughs) It's not even fair. Because <laughs> he's so much more brilliant. It, 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 I promise you, it's like an 80-year-old chess master playing chess with an infant. He's 17 moves ahead. He's prepared for everything. And his desire is that anything the enemy meant for evil, he will turn to good. Yeah. 
that He will redeem everything. The darkest part of your life, I promise you, there's redemption waiting the minute you turn to Him and submit it and surrender it to Him. It's, oh man, I feel like I'm going to repeat a bunch of things you guys already know, but listen to me. It's the reason that Solomon came from Bathsheba. When God is choosing the lineage of Jesus, He's going to bring Him through David. David has a wife of his youth, Michael, who he loves, who's the daughter of a king who was given to him because he obeyed God and went and slayed the giant. Yet that's not the wife that God brings Jesus' lineage through. He brings Jesus' lineage through Bathsheba, who becomes David's wife through a murderous, adulterous affair. Why? Because he can redeem anything. And Solomon comes through Bathsheba rather than Michael because he doesn't want you to think that if you made a mistake that he's unable to bring something beautiful through it. It's all throughout the Bible. It's just woven in there. It's the story of God who can't help himself going, it's okay, turn to me. I promise you. It's okay, turn to me. I can make something beautiful of it. I know you think it was a screw-up, and it was. And it was not what I wanted, and there may be a consequence, and there may be some pain that comes from it, but I promise you, the minute you submit that to me, I can start weaving it and turning it and working it into something good, and eventually it's beautiful. Listen to me. The city of Paris right now stands in a place to see God do something amazing because the enemy did something really horrible but it will take His people actually believing that it's possible and what comes from our mouth being life and not death and what comes from our mouth being filled with faith and not with fear. And we actually play a part in that because He didn't cause the bones to do anything until Ezekiel spoke. He said, so I prophesied. Listen, when God is speaking, whatever He's called you to do, the best response is do it. Just do it. Ezekiel says, oh Lord, you know. God says, okay, then you prophesy and this is what I want you to say. And he says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. God said twice in what he told Ezekiel to prophesy, I will put my breath in them and bring them to life. Two times, at the beginning and at the end. Why? Because he really wanted to put his breath in them and bring them back to life because he understands that every single time he breathes into something, life comes. That's how the disciples became born again. They were the first people to ever be born again. It was when Jesus was walking on the road and he said, receive the Holy Spirit and he breathed onto them and that same breath that God inhaled. All right, this is, hypo- this is my thinking, okay? This is what I believe and we'll find out one day that I'm right. But this is... <laughs> But I believe this. I believe that God breathed breath into Adam and life came into Adam. I believe that Adam gave that over to the enemy. That with that life and that authority that was breathed into Adam, he surrendered that over to the enemy, the authority and the dominion that he was supposed to take over to the earth. I believe Jesus came and He won back the breath of God for all humanity by living a spotless, sinless life. And I believe that when He was exhaling on the cross, it said that He gave up the ghost and He breathed His last breath. That as a man, He breathed out and God's face was right there. And He received that breath back into Him. And then when Jesus was in the grave, dead as a man, 
the Spirit of God comes and God Himself actually breathes that breath back into Him, bringing Him back to life the same way the first Adam was brought back to life. And now that breath is inside of Jesus and Jesus looks at His disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive true life. And He breathes that breath onto them. And as that breath enters into their lungs, they become a new creation born again by the Spirit of God. And life comes into them. And they're fully alive. God's so confident when He breathes on something there will be life that He tells Ezekiel, say it twice. (laughs) Say it twice. He did. And so He says, so I prophesied as He was... as." So I prophesied, I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So at this point, it would have been easy for Ezekiel to think, well, I guess I didn't hear him, but God said it twice. It was, ex- it was a super important. This was actually the most important part because there's a lot of people out there that there's skin and there's sinew and there's bone on bone and they have the appearance of being alive, but they're not actually full of life because they don't have the very breath of God, the Spirit of God within them. And Ezekiel could have stopped there and said, that looks way better. Because it used to be dry bones and now it looks like people. The problem is there's no life there. God's breath hasn't been breathed upon him yet. But God twice said, I will, I will put my breath in them. I will. Not you will. I will. Sometimes we think if God doesn't do exactly what he said he was going to do exactly when we think he should, that we either didn't hear him right or that he didn't do what he said he would do. And Ezekiel could have said, well, 90% is pretty good. How many of us would be happy if we got it 90% right and walk away and leave something that looks like it's alive but lacking the most important thing? Don't do that. Finish it. Then He said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of men, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain so that they may come to life. He wants to breathe on and bring things to life, but He wants a man to stand in the place and speak forth what He's going to do. And then He says, so I prophesied. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. Listen to me. God is fully capable of breathing on dirt and bringing a man But once he did that and brought a man in, from that point forward, everything that he did on the earth, he accomplished through men. Think about it. When he wants to take people out of Egypt, his people, what does he do? He sends a man. He gives the man what he needs. He promises to go with him, but he sends a man. When God wants to drive the people out of the land of Canaan and give the promised land to His people, what does He do? He says, I will drive them out. Now you go and drive them out. Why? It's a co-laboring like Madison was talking about. It's this thing where God says, I'm going to do it, but you're going to do it. So who's responsible? Yes. Whose responsibility is it? God's or man's? Yes. It's both. Because they could have sat back and said, listen to me, they could have sat back and said, well, if God wants us to have the land, then He'll drive people out and we'll wait until He drives them all out and then we'll go in and possess the land. But that's not what God said. God said, I will drive them out. Now you go and drive them out. I will drive them out like hornets before you. Now you go and drive them out. What was He saying? I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it through you. 
There's a lot of things he wants to do in the world right now, but he wants to do it through you. And we're waiting for a sovereign mood and a sovereign God has already moved and called us into that place of action. And for us to sit and pray for God to do more than he's already done is to believe there's something that Jesus left unfinished. Problem is on the cross, he said, it's finished. That was Jesus saying, it's finished. Now you go and do the finished work. That's why we have to know what he's saying and when, right? Because as the people were leaving uh, Egypt, they stood in front of a great sea, yet they weren't called to do anything except sit and wait. And so they sit and they wait. And then God speaks to Moses and says, raise your hands and I'll part the sea. But a little while later, they come to a river. And God says, okay, now this time I don't want you to sit on the edge of the river and wait for me to part it and raise your hands. Moses could have stood on the edge of that river and raised his hands and he'd still be standing there if he was still alive. And the waters wouldn't have parted because that's not what God wanted at that moment. God said, as the feet of the priest who go before you touch the water, then I will stop the rivers and I will part them and you will pass through them. We have to be really careful that just because God asked us to do one thing in one season that we don't make that the way that God will move and make that the standard for how God moves and sit on the edge of a river He's called us to step into waiting for Him to part it. Because a lot of times, the way He did it before isn't the way He wants to do it now. But He wants to do it. Believe that. Because they'll redeem anything. I'm telling you. Paris is on the verge of just seeing the heart of God explode. But there has to be people who actually, from a place of faith, will declare what God's Word says rather than agree with what the enemy is saying. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they stood to to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This was in the heart of God from the beginning as He led Ezekiel out there. He knew there was dry bones in that valley. He knew He wanted to raise them up to life and He knew He wanted to turn them into a great army. I'm just going to close up with this. Yet what does He do? He brings a man there. And He points out to a man, there's a problem. And then He tests the man. He says, do you think I'm capable of solving this problem? See, all of us are being brought to places in our lives where we see something that is a problem. And the question from God is always, do you think I'm capable of solving this? Oh, Son of Man, can these bones live? What's He saying? He's saying, can you believe something greater than what your eyes see? Do you think I'm capable of doing something greater than what you with your natural knowledge would say? And I promise you, I I don't think Ezekiel was 100% certain of of, of what was going to happen, but he didn't doubt in his heart that there was a possibility that God could do something. So he said, oh Lord, you know. If that's the least that we can find ourselves in as far as faith, if we're at a place where we're like, you know what, I don't know how. That's okay. Remember the farmer last week we talked about that planted seeds? It says he sows seed into the ground and night and day, night and day, he goes to sleep and the soil produces a crop. How? He does not know. It's okay if you don't know how, but it's not okay if you don't trust it because you don't know how. He can't. His ability is not contingent on your understanding and your knowing how He's going to do it, but it does require one thing that you believe that He can. Just because you don't have the how figured out, don't forget the who. 
This is God talking. If He's asking you, do you think I'm capable of doing something? It's because He knows He's fully capable. But He wants to find a person who will agree with Him in faith and believe enough to where He can tell them, okay, here's how I'm going to do it. Right now, I don't know how. I'll be honest, I don't know how this problem in our world right now gets solved. But I do know the answer lies in Jesus. And I know that He knows how. And I'm going to position myself to hear Him speak. And then when He speaks, I'm going to do what He calls me to do, whatever that looks like. And I'm going to make sure that in the meantime, what comes out of my heart is not ruled by fear, but by faith. Because if I lose faith, and I don't have hope, who has the hope of glory in me, what chance does this world have? Now, I'm just asking for our body that we would stand in that place. If we don't know how, it's okay. If you know how, start doing what God's called you to do. But if you don't, make sure that what comes from your mouth is ruled by faith and not by fear. And make sure that you're always open to the chance that maybe He's speaking something and that through you, He wants to actually do something and bring life to something that looks dead in any situation in your life. He's fully capable. So he says, I'm going to put my breath in him, but then there's no breath. And he waits for Ezekiel to say, oh Lord, what's going on here? Because two times you told me you're going to put breath in these things, but yet I look and there's no breath in them. He says, okay, that is my heart. And I did promise that I would put my breath in them. So now I want you to do your part and I want you to speak and prophesy and call it forth. And I'll do the thing that you're calling forth. We matter. Our voice matters. Our life matters. Your obedience matters. God, I just thank You that right now we're so full of hope. So full of life. God, that, that, that we mourn with those who mourn, that our hearts are grieved for those who are grieving, and we, we sympathize with them, and we feel their pain, and we pray for them, God, that You would bring peace and comfort. But in the back of our minds, while there's darkness trying to come, and while there's grieving, and while there's mourning, there's that thing that won't go away that says, I can redeem anything. I have not slept, nor have I slumbered. I'm not a man that I should lie. There's no shadow of turning or variation in me. I'm the same God that did everything that you've seen me do up to this point and I'm still on my throne and I'm still wanting to work through men to bring my kingdom to this earth. And it might look dark, but I promise you there's a light coming. So we don't mourn as those who have no hope because our hope is in You, Father. I pray that we would, we would examine the words of our fingers and our mouths. God, that we would check what comes from our mouths, what comes, from our, what comes into our minds and what we believe, what we meditate on. God, is it lovely, pure, innocent? Is it of good report, excellent, worthy of praise? Is it worth meditating on? If it's not, God, that we would take it captive to the obedience of Christ and we would replace it with something that is beautiful, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. When the enemy comes with fear, that we remember a promise that replaces the fear. And we let that be what our heart is set upon and what our mind dwells upon. And I just thank You for that. God, I thank You for stirring in the hearts of Your church all over this world. Uh, just a hope and an excitedness to see Your hand move in a way we've never seen before as we face an enemy we haven't faced before. 
that God, that we're poised to see Your mighty hand, God, and we believe that You can and that You will. That our ears would be open to hear Your heartbeat. And that we would respond. I thank You for that in Jesus' name. God, I just pray that anybody here who's ever believed and with their mouth has opened a door for something upon them, that that door is forever shut, God. And that for the rest of their lives, they would know that they have One who is their Father and He is in heaven. That we would see You as our Father. And that we would only accept things coming down the line that come from You, which is every good and perfect gift that comes from You the Father of lights in who there is no shadow or variation. I thank You for that, God. In Jesus' name, Amen.